Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 4. It's, I gave it a title this morning, and it's the testimony of a changed man. Testimony of a changed man. So we just finished last week, we finished chapter 3 of Daniel. And, uh, you know, we're not told uh, chronologically, you know, how long or between these chapters that we've just studied, the first three chapters. But I can tell you right now, there's probably at least a 30-year gap historically between what occurred in chapter 2 excuse me, chapter 3, and what is occurring here that we'll be reading about in chapter 4, probably at least a 30-year gap. And then, on top of that, the events that we're going to read about in chapter 4, they occur over an eight-year span of time. So this is a, this is a lot, lot of time here. Um, and what we're actually going to be reading, what's unique about chapter 4, is that this is a royal decree from a heathen king, that's recorded in the Bible. Uh, it, it, that's, it's a royal decree from a heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Um, there's something similar in Ezra, chapter 7, verse 21. Uh, there Artaxerxes, his, his decree is, is recorded in scriptures. But it's kind of unique. You don't get that too often in the Bible. We see that here in chapter 4. The man, of course, that we're going to be talking about is Nebuchadnezzar the ruler of the Babylonian Empire at this time. And I describe this, this chapter as a testimony of a changed man, and the changed man is Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel, I, I just kind of want to talk about him before, so leading up to what he's going to describe today, before all that takes place, Daniel described him. In fact, we'll see it next week in chapter 5. He's going to describe Nebuchadnezzar to his grandson, Belshazzar. And this is what he said. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. This is describing Nebuchadnezzar to his grandson. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had ultimate power. He had the power of life and death over anybody in his kingdom. Talk about power. That's ultimate power. In Jeremiah chapter 27, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 21, Jeremiah is giving a prophecy to the nation of Judah about Nebuchadnezzar. So he hasn't, he hasn't conquered Judah yet, but this is a prophecy about him. It says this in verse 7 of Jeremiah 21, And afterwards says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in the city from the pestilence and from the sword and from the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. He shall strike them with the edge of the sword, he shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. That was the prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar before he came into the land. When Nebuchadnezzar, and he did a, he, you know, he, he besieged Jerusalem a few times, a couple times anyways, and there was a progression of bringing captives out of Jerusalem, but at, finally at the end, it's about an 11-year span, finally at the end, he completely destroyed Jerusalem 
And this is what he did to King Zedekiah. And this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that we just read. It's in Jeremiah 39, verses 6 and 7. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Talk about brutal. Talk about unmerciful. Showing no pity. This is what this guy did. Is He ended up killing this king, King Zedekiah, the last king in Jerusalem. Killed his sons before his eyes. And that was the last thing he ever saw because then they plucked out his eyes. That was the last. I mean, talk about. I mean, that's evil. That's cruel. That's brutal. And so this is Nebuchadnezzar that we're reading about this morning. That was him. We read last week in chapter 3. Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I like to say it that way, but anyways, Abednego, some people say it that way. You know, remember when he would, they would not bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We read in verses 19 and 20 of Daniel 3, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. This guy had serious anger control issues. <laughs> you know, seriously. I mean, look at the fury in his anger there. Well... Here's the question. Here's the thing to think about. Are we going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? The scriptures doesn't tell us that, but I'll tell you what I believe. I believe so. I believe we will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. And there's a hint of that, I think, in his greeting. So um, what we're going to read in verse 1 is after those eight years that we're going to read about, he's going to go back, we're going to go back in time to those eight years. You know those movies sometimes, they start out and they kind of, they kind of give you a, this is the situation right now and there's this actor you know, playing a part or doing something. And then they back up and they kind of give you the back of the story and the, you know, it leads up to that same incident, the same first scene, opening scene in a movie. It's kind of what chapter four is like. We're getting this scene here, the first three verses, and then that's after the eight years, and then we're going to back up and go all the way to the beginning of the eight years and work our way back through again. So that's what's taking place here. So this is after the eight-year event that's described in chapter 4. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Isn't that interesting? Here's this king. He's the king of the known world, basically. He's the ruler of the empire of all the kingdoms that he's conquered. Ultimate ruler, basically, a world ruler at that point. And he doesn't say the great potentate, you know, the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. Look what he says there. He just says, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king. And remember, we talked about his fury and his brutality and his anger and, and how he could, just, he could just pronounce a death sentence at the whim. He could, he could just say, hey, off with his head or whatever like that. Here he says in his greeting to people, peace everywhere. I believe he's a transformed person. 
We'll look at that. Verse 2. I thought it good to declare the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. So we're about to read, actually, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. This is his personal story. You know, we all have a testimony. If you have a relationship with the Lord, you have a testimony to tell. And I, I can just hear someone saying, yeah, but you know what? I don't have a testimony like that. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't a brutal dictator and, you know, killed people and stuff. I wasn't a mass murderer. I wasn't a, a drug dealer. I wasn't this or I wasn't that, you know. Um, so I don't really have much of a testimony. Sometimes I think people like to give what I call a boastimony. You know, it's like, well, I was this terrible person and now, I'm a, now the Lord saved me. I'm this, you know, we all have a testimony. We all have, you have, I should say, and myself included, your own personal story of how the Lord interacted in your life, how God has revealed himself to you in the past and even recently. You know, I say, well, I don't really have an exciting, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. So, Lord, still, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is he working in your life right now? You can share that with people. That's a testimony. What's he doing in your life right now? During this pandemic, for example, What's he been revealing to you? What, how's he been guiding you? That is what you can share as your testimony with people around you. Verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar continues, this is, How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Wow, what a difference. Remember back in chapter 2. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it scared him. You know, he didn't know what it was, or he, he, didn't, you know, he didn't know the interpretation of it. And what it was, basically, was this giant, giant, this man, basically, an image of a man. And, uh, uh, and, you know, we could go back into chapter 2 and read about it, but if you know the story, Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, you, king, you're that head. You're the, the head was made out of gold. And then there was different metals as you go down progressively down uh, the statue. And he said, you're that head of gold. But the dream meant that his kingdom would eventually be replaced by another kingdom represented by the, the chest and the arms of, of uh, silver. And uh, so that would be another kingdom. And then after that, there would be another kingdom and another kingdom. And so his kingdom would be replaced by other succeeding kingdoms. That was in chapter 2. In chapter 3, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He said, forget that. He built an entire image of gold. Because remember, the gold represented him. This kingdom is going to last forever. And so he had this image of gold, and he wanted, it's not just the head, it's the entire uh, kingdom, or excuse me, the entire uh, statue. And... So basically what he was saying, what he was, what he was portraying was, this kingdom's never going to end. It's always going to be Babylon forever, baby. <laughs> you know. Um, what brought Nebuchadnezzar to this place we're reading about right now? Because there's definitely a difference there. There he says, he says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. What brought him to that? Well, we're going to find out, because now we're going to read. He's going to give us his personal story. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I'll just stop you right now and just tell you, that's kind of an understatement. It's a little bit, you know, so I'm going to preach a sermon. Actually, I am preaching a sermon. <laughs> this afternoon, 
I might go home and rest. I, sometimes that's what I do Sunday. It depends. We have something to do or something. We might do something else. But a lot of times I'll come home and I'm just like, oh, man, I'm, I'm beat. You know, I'm emotionally and spent. And I've been up early, early this morning. And it's like, you know, ah, I'm just I'm going to go rest. And uh, yeah, I might do that. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I was at rest in my house, the house and flourishing in my palace. He did a little bit more than preach a sermon. What he did, basically, he had already conquered, because he was a warrior, he already conquered Syria, Phoenicia, Judea, and Arabia. Matthew Henry said this, he had later conquered Egypt, and with it completed his victories and ended his wars and made himself monarch of all those parts of the world, which was about the 34th or 35th <coughs> excuse me, year of his reign. So he had conquered all. He he'd conquered everything there was to conquer, basically, and now he's resting in his palace. It's, it's done, you know. He's he's conquered everybody. They're all his subjects now. He's done. And then Wikipedia, which is a great truthful source for everything. I'm just kidding, <laughs> but I'm going to read this to you out of Wikipedia, anyways. In 567 B.C., and this is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, he went to war with Pharaoh Amasis and briefly invaded Egypt itself. After securing his empire, which included marrying a Median princess, he devoted himself to maintaining the empire and conducting numerous impressive building projects in Babylon. He is credited with building the fabled Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They were described as a remarkable feat of engineering with an ascending series of tiered gardens containing a wide variety of trees, shrubs, and vines, resembling a large green mountain constructed of mud bricks. And then it goes on to say, according to one legend, the hanging gardens were built alongside a grand palace known as the Marvel of Mankind. The Hanging Gardens were one of the seven wonders of the world in those, in those days. And then, if this is true, he had built himself a palace. It's like, it's the marvel of mankind. It's like, this is the, the, the best that there is, the most advanced, the most, the most impressive palace. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had great power. We've seen that. He had great success. And he had also great wealth. Now, I just got to say something here. There's nothing intrinsically evil with having great power or having great success or even having great wealth. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. If you look back in the Bible in the Old Testament, Abraham was very wealthy in his day. And he was a godly man. He's the father of our faith. Jacob, his grandson, likewise, was very wealthy. Down the road, many years later, David, King David, man, talk about successful in battles and talk about power. And then his son was the wealthiest person that ever, ever existed. Even, he's even more wealthier than the guys that own Amazon or, you know, uh, whatever those other companies are, Google, you know. They're nothing compared to what Solomon had in his day. Because the Bible says there, there would never be anyone more wealthy than Solomon. 
So, the, you know, great wealth. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, remember the guy that, you know, he, he's the one that Jesus' tomb, or, you know, the, he loaned his tomb because he knew he wouldn't have to hang on to it. He loaned his tomb to Jesus, right, just for a few days, for the weekend. Um, and, and so, um, but it says that he was a rich man. This is that in prophecy in Isaiah 53. He was a rich man. He was a godly man. Lydia in the city of Philippi. Now, we're not told that she was wealthy or anything, but we are told that she was a seller of purple. Purple was dyed cloth that was very expensive dyed cloth in those days. Royalty wore purple. And so it kind of goes without saying, she was probably very successful or, or even wealthy as a businesswoman. There was nothing wrong with wealth, power, or success in your life. The problem is is how you view that success, that wealth, and that power. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was an immense source of pride for him. And the problem also is what you do with your success, wealth, and power. For Nebuchadnezzar, everyone was beneath him. They existed basically to serve him at his whims. And as we've seen, he mercilessly crushed anyone that stood in his way. This is the Nebuchadnezzar before. That was eight years prior to his writing this decree. decree excuse me. So what brought him to this place? Another dream, an interpretation, and a fulfillment of that dream. In other words, a divine intervention in his life. That's what changed him. We'll continue on here. Verse 5. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in. And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now if you've been following along in Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 2, you might be thinking what I thought. Why didn't he just go to Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel's, not only could Daniel interpret the dream, but he actually told him what the dream was in chapter 2. The other guy said, man, nobody's ever done that before. You know, it's unreasonable to request that. So why didn't he just skip the middleman and go straight to Daniel? I'll tell you why. I think, again, I think summoning Daniel was his last resort. I don't think he really wanted to consult in Daniel. Psalms 10 verse 4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. When I introduced into Daniel chapter 1, I mentioned this about Nebuchadnezzar. He is a pan, or was a pantheist. A pantheist means that he worshiped many gods. And Babylon had many deities. And so I think he was probably still hoping that his Chaldean or his Babylonian gods or his deities could interpret the dream for him. I think it's, a, it's like, man, I've been putting all my life and my trust in these. They've got to bail me out. They've got, they've got to come through for me. Well, the God of Israel had already proved to be greater than the Chaldean gods when Daniel not only could tell him the dream, but also interpret the dream back in, in chapter 2. In chapter 3, the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego already proved that the, that the God of Israel was alone to be worshipped. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar experienced those things. 
But the Chaldeans, I believe, the Chaldean deities, was still a source of pride for Babylon. I mean, after all, they were Babylonian deities, you know. It kind of reminds me of a story in 2 Kings chapter 5. And the story is about a guy named Naaman. Naaman. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. I don't know if you know that story or not. Don't read it right now. But 2 Kings chapter 5, if you're taking notes. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, he had leprosy, or he developed leprosy, got leprosy. And he had in his household a young uh, Israeli, a Hebrew servant girl that was one of the captives that they had taken captive. And when she found out that her, her master had leprosy, she said this, she said, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And she was speaking of Elisha, the prophet. And so eventually, Naaman goes and, and, and sends a delegation to go to, to Elisha, the prophet, to, to, to get healed, basically. And Elisha basically sends a message. He doesn't even show up to Naaman, he sends a message and says, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. And what does Naaman do? He says this. He got angry, by the way. He says, Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Kind of reminds me what's taking place here. Nebuchadnezzar's like, Man, these Chaldean gods, man, they, I'm not going to go to a Jewish Hebrew. I, I'm, I worship many gods. My gods got to bail me. They're, they're going to come through. And they don't. They don't. Nebuchadnezzar's a pantheist, worships many Babylonian deities. It's another source of pride for him. He's not a monotheist yet. That's worshiping one god. But he, not yet, I should say. So these... Magicians, the Chaldean guys, they can't interpret his dream. So now that source of pride is squashed. God has a way of doing that, you know, kind of just chipping away at our pride here and there. His, he's starting to realize his Chaldean gods are, in fact, fallible. But he still wants his dream interpreted. So now, I think at last resort, he summons Daniel. Well, I know he did it last time. Let's bring him in. So he summons for Daniel. Verse 8. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. What a wonderful reputation that Daniel has. I know that the, whole, the spirit of the holy God is in you. Man, I, I, would, I hope that people say that to me. I mean, I know this holy spirit's in that guy. Wouldn't that be a cool reputation? That's what we should all have, a reputation like that. And he says in that no secrets troubles you. That's an Aramaic verb meaning to be difficult, to baffle, or to trouble. And the verb depicts the inability to solve a mystery or puzzling things such as the imagery in a dream. The reason why I bring that up is Amos 3 verse 7 says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. 
And you know, if, if you were to go through the Bible, at least a quarter, at least a quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. There's so much prophecy. That actually translates into like one in every four verses is prophetic. It has a, has a, it has a, a prophecy, uh, predictive prophecy. Some of them are already fulfilled as we, we go through the Bible and look at that. Some of them are yet to be fulfilled. And some of them have what I would call a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. In other words, they were fulfilled in some situation, but there's also a, a later fulfillment that hasn't been happened yet, uh, a near and a far fulfillment. One in four verses of the Bible is predictive prophecy. You know, this pandemic, some people call it a pandemic, whatever, I don't know. I didn't see it coming. I mean, you know, you always read about the, one of these days there's going to be this virus and, you know, it's going to be, it's, you know, and they have like scary movies about these viruses that take over and all this stuff. Um, but I'll be honest, for me, I didn't see it coming. But it turns out that it's being used as the vehicle for changing a lot of things in our world. There's, there's, there's a drive, a push towards a one world government system. So the pandemic kind of, that kind of caught me off guard. I mean, I didn't, you know, who would have thunk that the God was, or that the world was going to, you know, be like it is now. But what is behind it, the drive towards, the push towards a global government, uh, one market and all this, all that stuff that's kind of part of this whole thing, that doesn't surprise me at all because it's in scriptures. It's been prophesied. In fact, you ladies, you'll be going through that all in Revelation too. Scriptures prophesied exactly what we're seeing taking place. I'm not talking about the pandemic itself, but I'm talking about what's happening as a result. It's been prophesied. Those things shouldn't trouble us. And here's the other deal. You and I, we have the exact same spirit in us that Daniel did. That spirit that was giving Daniel the interpretation of the dreams and everything, that's the Holy Spirit in Daniel. You and I... We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us if you're a believer in Jesus. He's in your heart right now. We have the exact same spirit. And Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. That's the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you and I. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. What's been taking place in this world right now in our culture, it bothers me. I, I definitely don't like it, but I can tell you this, it hasn't shaken my world. It hasn't shaken my world. Why? Because I'm not of this world and neither are you. And we are resident aliens. Did you know that? I, I literally was a resident alien. I was born in Canada and grew up in, in California in the United States. And I didn't become a, a, a certified naturalized citizen until I was, I don't know, in my 30s, I think, maybe 40s. But I had served in the military. I mean, I, I went to school. I, everything. I mean, I grew up, I was three years old when I moved here. So for all intents and purposes, I was in the United States. But I wasn't of the United States. I was a resident alien. And the Bible says you and I as believers, we're resident aliens. This is not our world. So yeah, I don't like what's taking place, but man, this isn't my homeland, and sooner or later I'm going to be in my homeland. I care about what's taking place there. This place, yeah, it's, it's going to happen what's going to happen, right? And so as a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar said to, 
to Daniel, man, nothing troubles you. What a thing that would be said for you and I as believers, man. Nothing troubles them. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they get sick just like everybody else. Some people are getting, you know, COVID. Some people, you know, jobs are, you know, crisis. Things are happening in their lives. But it, it doesn't seem to shake them. That should be our testimony. That should be what people say about you and I. Why? Because Jesus said this, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And yeah, there's a lot of chaos going around, but we don't have to be troubled by it. We don't, it doesn't have to shake us to the core where we're, we're paralyzed, we can't do anything. Man, we're, we're, we're God's people here on earth, filled with his spirit. The, the commission, the great commission hasn't stopped. <laughs> we're still to make disciples of all nations. We're still to share our testimonies with people. Well, let's move on here into the dream. Verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and it was food and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. Verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. You've got to remember, the Babylonians were the captors of the, of the Israelis, of the Jewish people. They had captured, they had brought them into their land there. And this is Daniel's response. I don't know how many of you guys know the actor Alec Baldwin. If you're up on, on movies, you probably know he's, he did that Hunt for Red October. That's the first time I ever saw him in a movie. But if you know anything about that actor, he's an outspoken liberal. 
very outspoken. He's also appears to be quite arrogant whenever whenever he's interviewed and stuff. And there's things that you know, uh, if you I don't follow him, but you know, most of us know about him. I also know that he hated President Trump and he hates anything conservative. And then I don't know how many of you heard the news this week that on his set when he was he was he was rehearsing for a movie that he's he's actually the, one of the producers in it but and he's starring in it and he actually accidentally shot his camera person a young lady that was and then the bullet went through her and injured the guy the director that was standing behind her and i was thinking about this this week in relation to this let me ask you this rhetorically how did you react when you read that, if you read it, maybe maybe this is the first you've heard of it, but how did, for those of you that did hear about it or read it or whatever, how did that, how did you respond to that? I mean, what was your thoughts? It might have been maybe glee, you know? It's like, man, that, that, that guy, <laughs> he's getting his just desserts. Finally, man, it's coming around, you know? What goes around comes around type of a thing. What was your response to him? What were your thoughts about Alec Baldwin. I'll be honest with you, and I'm not some like super, I'm a godly man, and you know, I'm not saying it this way, but I'll tell you honestly from my heart, when I read that, when I heard it, my heart sank. It's not like, I wasn't like, oh man, he's, he's getting what he deserved. My heart sank. I, I can't imagine being in that situation. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to do something like that, an accident like that. I had empathy for him. And I know that he's got a brother, at least one brother, that's a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is, Lord, I pray that this is the one thing that finally brings him to his knees and comes to faith in Christ. I would encourage you, man, pray for him. Pray for him because there's a crisis in his life right now. And God can use it to transform him, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's response, it's not that he's afraid of the king's response. He's not. He has a genuine love and concern for the king. And so he gives the interpretation, verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And insomuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read some about the watchers, it's like, ooh, what are the watchers? You know, it's like, I want to find out what are the watchers, you know. This is basically a Chaldean definition for an angel. Okay, so it's, just, it's, it's an angel. Okay, it's, I mean, some people get really into the, the watchers, you know. I've even, I think there's a movie out called The Watchers. I don't know if it's related to that, but anyways, it's just Chaldean. That's how they described an angel. Verse 24. 
This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And he's saying this to the guy who can basically pronounce life or death over him. He's pleading with Nebuchadnezzar, man, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Psalm 119, verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. There's that boldness of the Spirit in Daniel at this point. He's basically trying to tell, Dan, or trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar, man, you can prevent, maybe you can prevent this if you change your life, change your heart. Interesting about Nebuchadnezzar, again, he has been prophesied in early on in the book of Jeremiah before he actually came in, in and, and, and destroyed Jerusalem and took the, Judah, uh, the people of Judah captive. But in Jeremiah 27, verse 6, Jeremiah prophesies this. This is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. He says, and now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field are also given to serve him. Nebuchadnezzar was basically God's servant to defeat, to capture, and also to preserve the Jews of Jerusalem and Judah for a 70 years period. He was just an instrument of God's discipline and judgment for the nations around and, and discipline for the children of Israel. And yet, back in chapter 3, he was ready to destroy any Jews who would not bow down to him, which is kind of interesting. I, thought, I was thinking about this. There's three Jews that, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but when we read in chapter 1, there, were, there, were, there had to have been more that actually were taken captive. kind of wonder, what, did they just bow down or what? I don't know. We already talked about where Daniel is, so I'm not going to go into that. If, you want, if you're curious, you can listen to last week's message. Um, but here, Nebuchadnezzar was, in all reality, he was God's servant. Uh, he thought, of course, I'm the ruler, I'm, you know, it's my great power, my great wealth, my great... God just gave it to him for God's purpose. His pride, and Nebuchadnezzar was prideful, caused him to use his success and power to mis mistreat those beneath him, evidently, because Daniel brings that up. And he did not use his vast wealth to help the weak and the poor. He was an oppressor of the people he ruled over. I have this quote from Bob Deffenbaugh. He said this, Authority is not a position of status. It's a place of service. If you're in a, if you're in a position of authority, it's not, 
you've arrived and you're this, you're this leader of whatever it is, it's a place of a servant. Even the disciples had to learn what authority was because they, they, they understood basically the way the world is. You're above somebody, you treat them beneath you, right? Jesus said this to the disciples, Matthew 20, verse 25 to 26. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great, uh, to become great among you, let him be your servant. That's the purpose, but Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that way. Verse 28, we go back to the story here. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So now Nebuchadnezzar's not saying this part of the story because he actually went insane for a period of time. So Daniel obviously is recording this portion of it. So this is not Nebuchadnezzar's words right here, although we'll return back later and then he will be speaking again. But verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, <clears throat> He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for, and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws." For seven years, he lived insane like an animal. If you know the Bible, the number seven is the number of completion. God had completely stripped away everything and anything that Nebuchadnezzar could take pride in. Completely wiped it out. Even pride in himself is completely amazing. You know, um, you, you won't read that in Wikipedia I mean, you might read that this is a, a legend or something like that. Um, the article that I was reading that I was quoting to you, it never talks anything about that. And uh, some people, uh, let me read you a, a quote, and I got this from David Guzik. He said, some people dismiss this account of Nebuchadnezzar's madness as unhistorical. But here's the clinch. But there is no historical record of his governmental activity between 582 B.C. and 575 B.C. That's a seven-year period. It says the silence is deafening, especially when we keep in mind how Near Eastern leaders like to egotistically trumpet their achievements and hide their embarrassments, just like I like to do, you know, or like you like to do, right? We don't like to talk about our failings, our weaknesses, but we'll tell you, you know, our successes, we'll tell you what's good about ourselves, but we're going to hide our embarrassments. That's, that's, human, that's human nature, well, now we return back in verse 34 to Nebuchadnezzar. So this was the story. This is what took place. And now verse 34, now Nebuchadnezzar is speaking again. And at the end of the time, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, <laughs> he's able to put down, and he's speaking from experience. It wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven and acknowledged God, the Lord God, that he was restored. So going back to my question I asked in the very beginning, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I think so. I really believe so. What world ruler like Nebuchadnezzar would give a personal testimony like this? You know, describing what he was like before, but also describing his pride. You know, usually when you're prideful, we all know that you're prideful, but you don't know it, right? Because you're too proud to know that you're, you're too proud to admit that you're prideful. But we all know, we see it. But, but, you know, here's a person describing his pride and describing his humiliation. What king of an empire would do that if a transformation had not taken place in his life? Very fascinating. What's also fascinating is what's intertwined in Nebuchadnezzar's personal story. I don't know if you've kind of caught that when you're reading it, but there's two things that are interrelated, and that's this, witness and worship. You know, he's giving his testimony, but man, it's full of worshiping the Lord, praising the God of heaven. See, you can't be transformed and not worship the Lord. Worship is a response to who the Lord is to you personally and what the Lord is doing in your life. And I'm just going to ask this rhetorically. How's your worship lately? You know, we come here and we do worship music. We sing worship songs. It's like it's a genre of music, worship music. Man, it's far from that. What's, when we come here on the Sunday mornings or any time, when you're at home or whatever, man, worship should be a response. What's the Lord doing in your life? So, I mean, and, you know, I'm not like looking at everybody, but I wonder when you come in here on Sunday mornings and you're worshiping the Lord, has the Lord done anything in your life? Because you don't seem too excited about worshiping the Lord. You don't seem too like, man, praise God. So, I love him. I see a lot of people just, you know, hallelujah. <laughs> Again, I'm not, I'm not staring at, oh, that person's, you know, I'm not making a judgment, but I, I just got to throw that out there. You know, worship is a response to what God's doing in your heart, to what he's doing in your life, and, and also who he is to you personally. So you can't be transformed and not worship the Lord. And you can't be transformed without wanting to share it with others. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar, like Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, now that you're a different person, you need to write your testimony. You know, you, you got to share your testimony. I mean, we're all called to do that. You know, it, it wasn't that. 
He was transformed. And man, he's, I got to tell you. I got to tell everyone in my kingdom. I was a fool. I was prideful. Man, God humiliated me. But look what God did. And now I worship the Lord God. Man, that's a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't co coerced into writing this, test to, uh, this decree to his entire empire, but he can't help but share it with others. And, you know, I, I was thinking, well, how do we apply this in our own lives? You know, I, I just want to encourage you. We need to start encouraging one another. I mean, you know, for a while there, we were all, you know, we, we can only, according to our governor, we can only have 10 people here, you know, because that was the limit. Otherwise, people are going to get sick. And so we, you know, we, we follow that as much as we could. And, you know, we 10 people here, and we did our live stream. That's when we started our live stream. And now some of you have been coming back. Praise the Lord. Uh, some people still haven't come back yet. I don't know if some people are going to be coming back, but, you know, I don't know. It's up to the Lord. I, it's, I have no control over that. But one thing I do know is that it's essential for us to be together in person with one another. It's essential for our faith because we, we sharpen one another. We encourage one another. If you're home, and I'm, I, I'm not judging any of you that are home watching this, but if you're home and that's all you're doing and you're just watching a, a message, uh, you might be, be edified by the teaching. Maybe I, I pray that the, you're edified and I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to you. But we need that interaction. We're the body of Christ. Man, a, a foot left by itself, it's going to die. It's going to shrivel, shrivel up and die. It needs, it needs the blood flow. It needs, it needs the interaction, the nerves. It needs every part of the body together. And that's true for each one of us. We will shrivel up if, we're, if we isolate ourselves. So, you know, uh, it's important that we're together. So I just want to encourage you, start encouraging one another. Challenge, it's not, you know, it's not, don't become legalistic about it. But encourage them, hey, what's God done in your life? I'd like to hear what the Lord's, you know, been showing you. And, you know, if you're not one that's always daily into the Word, it's going to go, well, I better start digging in because someone's going to ask me when I come to church. Again, I'm not trying to make that a legalistic thing. But I want to encourage you. Man, I get blessed when people share what the Lord's been doing in their life. It encourages me. It stokes me up. And I know it will stoke each one of you up, too, if we do that, we start sharing that. Malachi 3.17, and I don't have it on my slides, but then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Every time you're sharing your testimony with someone or you're sharing with here with us, you're encouraging one another, God's like, oh, did you, I hear that. He's talking about me. She's talking about me. Awesome. Write it down, Gabriel, <laughs> whoever the recorder is in heaven. That's awesome. Anyways. Well, I forgot the guy that always says it now for the rest of the story. Got the guy's name. Say it again. Paul Harvey, yes. And now for Pastor Don Harvey. Um, now for the rest of the story. Matthew Henry writes this. Nebuchadnezzar lived about two years after, after this chapter, and died in his 45th year, now, um, meaning of his reign, not when he was 45 years old. This is the last we hear of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. And what's he doing, this heathen god, or this heathen king? He's worshiping the God of Israel. Think about that. That's, a, that's the last thing we read about in the Bible. I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. As far as, as men go, Nebuchadnezzar was the top of the food chain. 
No one more powerful at his, in his day, no one more powerful, no one more successful or wealthy than Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, if God can transform the ruler, the ultimate ruler of an entire empire of the world, now he can transform the godless leaders in the United States. <laughs> Let's bring it all back down to here. God can transform those people that are in office, that have been voted in or however they got in. God can transform them. So what can we do? 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You might be on the other political side of whoever's in office, or you might be, you know, uh, you know whatever. They're them and you're you and you know, you're, you're, you're a different party or whatever it is. God's desiring that all men come to faith in Christ. They're not the enemy. We have an enemy. They're not it. They're tools of the enemy, but they're not the enemy. We need to be praying for those people, those leaders in government. And I'm going to th throw one more slide up here because before the worship team comes up, I want to just spend a couple minutes. And I think we should, we should get into the habit of doing that praying for our leaders. The ones that I'm going to show, I'm not going to mention them by name right now until we pray. But uh, as far as I know, they're godless. <laughs> I mean, they may think they're religious, but they're godless. I don't know what God they're worshiping, but it's not the God of the Bible. It's not, it's not Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. So I want to end with us doing something because, listen, if God can change Nebuchadnezzar, he can change anybody. He really can. So let's pray. Let's, let's just go ahead and pray for these people. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to lift up our leaders. Lord, we pray for President Biden. Lord, we pray for Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. Lord, we also pray for our local, our state leaders, Lord, for Ilan Omar, Lord, for Amy Klobuchar and uh, Tina Smith and Tim Waltz. Lord, for the, the governors, senators, and Congress people, Lord, we just pray for them, Lord. We, 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 I, I pray that we're encouraged, Lord, that we know that you can transform the heart of anybody. And Lord, so we want to lift up our leaders. We pray for their salvation. Lord, we pray that you would do in a divine intervention, just like you did for Nebuchadnezzar, you would do it in the hearts of these people. Lord, the most important thing is that they have a personal relationship with you. We're not even praying that they change policies, although that would that'd be wonderful. But Lord, what's more important than a change in our government or a change in, in rules and policy is a change that would result in them having eternal life. Lord, that's your desire. Your desire is not that we have an elephant or a donkey in, in, in the White House, Lord. Your desire is that all men are saved. And so we pray for the salvation of these leaders, Lord. We pray, and for all the leaders, Lord, in government, we pray that you would uh, bring them to a place where they recognize and acknowledge that you are God, that you are Lord, and that you would change their lives. So we pray for them. Lord, we also, I just want to lift up, since I mentioned him, Lord, I want to pray for actor Alan, ba uh, 
Alec Baldwin. Lord, we pray for him and his wife. Lord, we pray that this situation, and even those that were affected by the gunshot, Lord, we pray for all those people, Lord, that this would be the divine intervention that brings them into a personal relationship with you. Lord, we know you can do it. We've seen it here in the Bible. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I also pray, Lord, that you would use us in these last days, Lord. You have given each one of us your spirit. Lord, may we be filled with your spirit and led by your spirit. And, Lord, may we boldly share our testimony, and may our testimony involve our worship too, Lord God. And so I just pray that you would transform our hearts as well. So we thank you and we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and have the worship.